Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, once again, we acknowledge our need for you. We acknowledge the reality that without you helping us understand that all we would be is confused. Especially, Lord, when we approach the subject matter that we are talking about this morning, Lord, these things are difficult for us. Not because you're difficult and not because you're confused, but because we are limited in our finiteness to fully comprehend everything that you have prepared for us and on our behalf. Help us this morning, Lord, to understand and to embrace the truth that you have for us, that we might just revel in the wonder and majesty of who you are and the grace that you have given us in salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, please open your Bibles with me this morning to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Over the last several weeks, we have been spending our time here in Romans chapter 9 as we continue to follow the argument of the Apostle Paul that he's making concerning his own countrymen and all of those throughout history who will have objections in their minds about the implications of what he's teaching. Because what we have been hearing in our study of this great book that Paul has, that we have from God through Paul, what we've been hearing is that every person is guilty of sin. Every person is guilty of sin. In other words, there is no one ever born who could be innocent before God on their own merits. We heard that all the way back at the beginning of our study of this book in chapters 1, 2, and 3. That was very clear. All have sinned. In fact, chapter 3, verse 23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because of that, therefore, we have heard that salvation is by faith alone. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and because no one can earn salvation on their own, salvation is by faith alone. And it is with the proclamation of those truths, it is with the pronouncement of those very realities that Paul finds it necessary to address the Jewish objection to the fact that God made promises to Israel. Therefore, if being a child of God is based upon salvation by faith alone, then what about the Jews in the Old Testament? What about the Jews? In other words, if God is saving people based upon faith alone, then hasn't God gone against himself? Because he promised to Israel promises that last forever. And if they are not saved because of the promises that God made to them, then God can't be trusted to do what he says. And therefore, it's a credibility issue with God. If God's credibility is no good with Israel, then it can't be any good with us either. And so this... This is the theological struggle that many have. And Paul has anticipated that struggle. And as we 
learned the beginning of Paul's answer to that struggle last Lord's Day in verses 6 through 13, Paul summed it up with two thoughts. Because the, the trouble was that God's Word must have failed. If God's Word in the Old Testament has failed, if His promises have failed, then God can't be trusted. What about the Old Testament? And Paul answers that in verses 6 through 13 with these two thoughts. Number one, God's children are not who you may have always thought. He says it right there for us in verse 6. Not all Israel who are descendants are descended from Israel. Not all physical Israel, not all the descendants of Israel are actually spiritual Israel. And then, of course, Paul gives another second thought because that's true because it is God's choice that determines his children. It is God's choice that determines his children. Verses 10 through 13. Not only this, but there was Rebekah also, who, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were yet not born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose, according to choice, might stand. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. And therefore, verse 13 gives us those shocking words. The, uh, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And the implication from both of those realities that all Israel is not Israel and it is God's choice that matters is that God's word has not failed at all. Because, number one, true spiritual Israel is not all physical Israel. In other words, God is fulfilling his promises to Israel, and he will ultimately fulfill every promise he's made to Israel, but not to the Israel you might think. Why? Because, number two, it is God's choice that makes the determination. It's God's choice that makes the determination. God chose Isaac. God chose Jacob. God chose Isaac over Ishmael. God chose Jacob over Esau. And that's where our trouble comes in, because of our own sinfulness, because of our own depravity. When we hear those statements, our humanity says, that's not what? Fair. That's not fair. That's the collective perspective of humanity concerning how God is dealing with mankind. It's not fair. If sovereign election is true, if sovereign choice is how God deals with things, then it's just not fair. So from man's perspective, God, if God is to be fair, and by fairness, man means that if one person gets something, then the others deserve to have it also. That's fairness from the human perspective. If one gets it, the others deserve to have it. If we are going to claim that the one granting salvation is actually righteous and just, then all must get the same thing. I was thinking about this 
this week, as humans, we actually think with a theological socialism mindset. I said to my wife, I'm going to coin a term tomorrow. She said, that scares me. (laughs) We're theological socialists. Here's what socialism is. You can look it up in the dictionary. A theory or system of social organization that advocates the vesting of the ownership and control of the means of production and distribution of capital in the community as a whole. In other words, everybody gets the same stuff. Everybody gets the same thing. So when man thinks of God, if he dispenses salvation at all, then it must be a distribution to the community as a whole. That's theological socialism. Why? Because that's the idea that all deserve salvation or God is not righteous. That's the implication. I was listening to a sermon this week and I was reminded of an article written by J.I. Packer some years ago entitled, Is God Fair? Is God Fair? And in it he gives the description of how man thinks. And I just want us to listen to this. It's interesting. And this, I believe, was a fictitious accounting. It's a fictitious accounting with a man named Bill who happens to be a Christian. Here's how it goes. Quote, No, life isn't fair, said the journalist, whose livelihood was touring the world to cover disasters. Earthquakes, tsunamis, Famines, floods, pandemics, volcanic eruptions, they just happen. And that's all you can say about them. You can work out afterwards what triggered at least some of them, but you can't predict them with any accuracy, and you certainly can't foresee how much damage they will do. They kill thousands at a time and ruin the lives of thousands more, even millions sometimes. They turn this lovely world into a tragic mess. And when you've seen them up close, as I have, the journalist said, you know better than to just shrug them off and say they don't matter. Life's not fair. And if there's a God who runs the show, then he isn't fair either. For it always, it's always the nice folk who suffer the most. Genetics certainly isn't fair said the doctor, whose specialty was Huntington's Korea. Physical and mental handicaps are randomly passed on by genetic transmission. Some babies are marked for misery from birth, and all you can offer is palliative care. There's no cure possible. If you had to talk to parents and relatives the way I sometimes have to do, you'd appreciate how awful this is. Now, I believe in God. I think most people do, but sometimes I find myself thinking how unfair, how downright cruel he seems to be. I'm sure many of those who are in these situations feel the same way. Well, I've certainly found myself feeling that God is unfair many times these last few months, said the investment advisor. I was bamboozled and bankrupted by a man in the church whom I'd known for years. We set up together as a Christian firm. We prayed together about it, and I prayed a lot about it on my own. 
But he fiddled the books, absconded with the money, and left me with nothing. I felt God was laughing at me, and it wasn't a good feeling. A lot of Christians paint themselves into a corner where they can't help tagging God as unfair, said the publisher. They say that God loves everyone and everything is under his control. So the way he wrecks some lives, though, and not others is certainly unfair. If they say God loves some people but not all people, that is unfair in itself. And yet, you know the Bible tells us that God plays favorites in just that way. You know the little rhyme that says, How odd of God to choose the Jews. Well, according to the Bible, he did that. And he told the Jews to kill a lot of other tribes to make room for themselves when they invaded Palestine. And sometimes he did the killing himself when the Jews were under threat. If that isn't playing favorites, I don't know what is. Nowadays, we've got Bible bashers who insist that God loves nobody but the elect, whoever they are. Is the God of all the callous elitism unfair? As the Brits say, not half. The God I think I believe isn't like that at all. By this time, they were all looking at Bill, the Christian. Bill, said the journalist, you've heard what we've just said. If you think we're getting at you, I won't say you're wrong. You've often told us that you're an old-fashioned Orthodox Christian who believes the Bible from cover to cover. So be honest now. Don't you agree that your God has a lot to answer for? Can't you see that if he exists at all, he is terribly, terribly unfair? Unquote. You can hear the difficulty, can't you? You can hear the dilemma. If God makes a choice... And God must be unjust. That's where we are in our study. That's where we are right here in Romans chapter 9. It didn't take us long to get there. Why? Because the cry for justice is always on our tongues. It always lies just behind the collective lips of humanity. But I want to say to us this morning, we have to be very careful. We have to be very careful especially as those who claim to know Jesus Christ, because I can assure us all right here, right now, today, I can assure us that justice is not how we want God to deal with us. Is God unjust by election? Is God unrighteous by his choosing to save some and not all? Well, let's see. Let's see. Follow along. As I read verses 14 to 29, I I, want to read this lengthy section, not because we're going to get to all of that, but because there's more questions that come from the question. Notice what Paul says. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend upon the man who wills or the man who runs 
but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. And so you'll say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, what if he endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did it in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. As he also says in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said, To them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word upon the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, except the Lord of the Sabbath had left to us a posterity, we would have become as Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. Implication, had God not done what he has done, there would be nothing left but a pile of ashes. And you may have noticed as I read that passion or that passage that the version that I read, the New American Standard Version, translates the original word in verse 14, adikia, it translates it with the word injustice. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? That is not a wrong word, but I believe it is more accurate to translate it as unrighteousness. Unrighteousness. Because adikia means to act with wickedness. That's the idea. To act with wickedness, to be unrighteous in your dealings. So, if God is unfair, the implication is that God is wicked in his acts. And here in verse 14, Paul is anticipating again the question in the minds of those who are reading this letter for the first time. Even some of us who are here, he's anticipating That if salvation is by God's choosing, even in our own minds, if salvation is by God's choosing, then there must be some unrighteousness with God. Because to choose some and not choose others is, by our own estimation, unfair. You notice that Paul gives an immediate and extremely strong response to that kind of idea. 
May it never be. God being wicked? Absolutely no way. May it never be. It could not be. It is unthinkable. You cannot go there in your mind. It's the farthest thing from reality. It has no basis in truth. That's the idea. God cannot be wicked. Now, you'd think that that should be enough. Let's just put an exclamation point right there, white out the rest of it. That's enough. God can't be wicked, but Paul's not satisfied with leaving it there. Paul doesn't just leave it at that. He proceeds to give reasons for why that cannot possibly be true. And so Paul asks the question in verse 14 that he anticipates is in the minds of many people, even in the minds of maybe even some here today, and he answers the question with two clear reasons in verses 15 to 18. Two clear reasons why God cannot be wicked, why God cannot be unrighteous. Just as a footnote, by the way, we're going to see that he deals with another objection in verses 19 through 24. An objection that he anticipates is coming from what he's going to say in verses 14 through 18. And that is, well, then man must not be responsible then. Where is man's responsibility if God's the one who elect? If we stipulate the fact to you, Paul, if we stipulate the reality that God's not wicked, that God's doing what he said and God chooses, then man isn't responsible. That's the essence of the question in verse 19. Why does he still find fault? We'll get to that either next time or in a couple of weeks. But this morning, we have to address this first issue. Is God unrighteous in how he deals with man through election? Is God unrighteous? And as we begin, we cannot forget that this objection flows out of, as I said, from what Paul has quoted to us in verse 13. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now we may not struggle with the words as they are read there, but what we struggle is with the meaning of it. We cannot lighten what it means by what it says. You read commentator after commentator who try to lighten the reality of the words here. The words mean what the words mean. In other words, there are only two options in the economy of God. And in the way that every Old, Ter- Old Testament person understood God, there's only two ways in his economy. It is either love or hate. Those are the two ways in God's economy, love or hate. To not be loved was to be hated. To not be loved was to be hated. In other words, in one sense, hate is the absence of love. Or to say it with action words or verbs, to hate someone is to not love them. And so when we think of God, there are those whom God loves and there are those whom God hates. Some people try to say there are those whom God loves, but but when we think of hatred, it's those whom God loves less. No, that's not the case. That's not these words. That's not the words God used. If God doesn't love them, He hates them. The divine decree upon both 
The divine decree upon those whom God loves and those whom God hates was made before they were ever born into this world. That's the implication here because that's what we are told in verses 10 and 11 about Jacob and Esau. Specifically, verse 11, though the twins were not yet born, they hadn't done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. And the objection that God is unrighteous pertains to both Jacob and Esau. Sometimes we don't like to think of it that way when we think about Jacob because Jacob God loved. But the the objection that God is unrighteous pertains to both. You say, what do you mean? Well, I mean this. It seems to be that God is unrighteous if he gives mercy to some and not to others. It seems that God would be unrighteous, i.e. in reference to Jacob, if God just loves Jacob but he doesn't love Esau. And it also seems, on the other side, that God is unrighteous to hate and condemn some and not others. I.e., God condemns Esau or hates Esau, but he doesn't hate others. And both happened before they were ever born. That's what the previous text tells us. And in our fallen, in our depraved thinking... God must be unrighteous then, if that's the case. Unrighteous because he doesn't love all, and unrighteous because he doesn't hate all. So God made a discriminating sovereign choice. He made it before these two boys were ever born, or whether they ever did anything. Now, that was implied in the promise to Abraham that God would give Abraham a son. That was implied that God had made a choice prior to the birth in Abraham. But some could argue, some Old Testament people, a Jew who knew the Old Testament, and especially in Paul's day, they could argue that God chose Isaac because Ishmael wasn't really that good of a guy. They could say that. And so Paul follows that up with this Example of Rebekah in giving birth to Jacob and to Esau and that the promise was made before they were ever born. So no one could, could squirm out of the issue. No one could get to the issue and say, well, it was just because the boys were boys because they were when they were born and they started to do things. God saw down through the annals of time. God looked and saw that Jacob was going to be a better boy. So then people say God must be unrighteous because apparently he seems to reject to save some without cause and he condemns others without cause. In other words, if there is an effect, then there must be a cause and the cause is man's, in man's mind is God must be unrighteous. That's the dilemma. That's the reality that many struggle with when it comes to this doctrine. Maybe you're sitting here and you're right there up against that wall. You're right there. You hear it. You read it. You know the words say what they say and mean what they mean and and you're right there. 
Well, I trust this is going to help this morning. So how does Paul answer? How does Paul answer that objection? How does Bill, in the illustration, answer? God must be unfair. Well, Paul's answer is in verses 15 and 16, at least the first part of his answer. And he says, I will say that God is not unrighteous because he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it doesn't depend upon man who wills or man who runs, but on God who has mercy. You say, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, it means, beloved, that God's sovereign choice to save anyone is not based upon a deserved cause. Let me say that again. God's sovereign choice to save anyone is not based upon a deserved cause, but rather upon an undeserved cause. God's choice to save anyone, God's choice to save you, the reason that you are saved had nothing to do with a deserved cause in you, but rather an undeserved cause. You say, well, what is that? Well, notice the terms that are used here in these verses. In verse 15, Paul says that God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And then in a juxtaposition in verse 16, he gives the opposite or the the. The other side of it, it doesn't depend upon a man who wills his desires or a man who runs his work, his effort. It depends upon the God of mercy. So we understand what mercy, we understand that mercy and compassion are not the same things. God isn't saying to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and listen so you know what I said, I have mercy on whom I have mercy. No, they're not the same words. They don't mean the same thing. Mercy is a term used to describe the desire to relieve suffering. That's mercy. The desire to relieve suffering. In other words, someone is suffering. You see that and the desire wells up within you to relieve that suffering. That's mercy. That's that's mercy. Paul understood God's mercy. Listen to what he says in, to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 and 16. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me. Why? Because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet, I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly. In unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason, I found mercy. Paul understood mercy. And so mercy is the desire to relieve suffering, but not because it's deserved. And certainly not because it's required. 
On the other term is compassion. Or maybe some of your translations say graciousness. Compassion, graciousness. Compassion is the outflow of mercy. It's the outflow of mercy. In other words, when suffering is seen, then compassion is kindled within. So we could say, we could say as we think about these these terms, mercy and compassion, we could say that compassion is the attending arm of mercy. That is simply to say that mercy puts compassion into practice. And so when it comes to God's sovereign choice to save, and remember last week we talked about our complete depravity. You will not grasp and understand and and really desire to understand any of this about God's sovereign choice until you fully embrace the reality of your complete depravity. Depravity teaches us that no one deserves salvation. No one. All fall short of the glory of God. No one deserves the glory of God, but God has mercy upon those whom he has mercy and compassion upon those whom he has compassion. We don't have time to look at it, but this is a, this is a quote from Exodus. Exodus 33 and 34 is where the, the context of the scene takes place, which follows, by the way, on the heels of Exodus 32, where Israel... Moses went up into the mountain to be with God and they didn't know what happened to Moses because he's up there for 40 days. They thought maybe something happened and so they tell Aaron, make a God for us. Aaron takes their gold and creates for them the golden calf. They begin to worship this idol. And God says to Moses, you better get down there, pal. You better get down there because I'm about to break out and destroy them all. Was there anybody there in the camp of Israel that didn't deserve to be destroyed for worshiping the idol? Anybody? And of course, Moses intercedes on their behalf and says, I want to see your glory. I want to see who you are. I want to see your glory. And God says, you're going to see my glory. You're going to see my glory. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, compassion on whom I have compassion. So when it comes to God's sovereign choice to save, God has mercy and compassion upon those whom he has mercy and compassion. Not, not because somehow they deserve it. Now those words imply an unchangeable truth that we have to remember. The unchangeable truth is this. God, because of his righteousness, is not obligated to be merciful. Let me say that again. God because of his righteousness, is not obligated to be merciful. Mercy is a choice. God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. That implies I'm making a choice. Don't say that I'm unrighteous. If you want my righteousness to come out, then move away because I'm going to destroy them all. But I'm going to make a choice. I'm not obligated to it. But I'm going to make a choice born out of mercy. It's not an obligation. This is an unchangeable truth that we can never forget. We humans don't like to think like that about God. We don't like that. That rubs against us. But the fact is that it's true. 
In fact, it's kind of ironic that that's exactly how we operate within our own laws of the land. You say, what do you mean? Well, when a person is sentenced according to the law, when they've been proven to be a lawbreaker and they are sentenced according to the law because they have been so proven to violate that law, guess what the law does? It exacts its punishment. It exacts its punishment. That's what it does. That's the righteous reality of the law. It's not obligated to do anything other than to exact its punishment. The law is not obligated to extend mercy simply because somebody's suffering. They're suffering based upon their own reality, who they are, what they've done. There is no obligation, according to righteousness, to extend mercy on those who are suffering. This punishment is breaking the law. We are lawbreakers. We've broken the law of God. Mercy is a choice. Therefore, the relieving of suffering or the extension of compassion is the outflow of that choice. And that too is not according, get this, that is not according to justice. You're saying, what are you talking about? It's not according to justice and you need to be thankful it's not. Justice says, you do the crime, you're going to do the time. That's what justice says. You break the law, you're going to pay the penalty. This is so important for us to understand, beloved, because the objection is that God is unrighteous. The objection is that if God saves by faith, if God saves based upon his elective, his sovereign choice to save, then he must be unrighteous. And Paul, in essence, is saying, listen, you need to understand that we're not dealing with this in a matter of righteousness or justice. You can't think of it like that when it comes to election. What you need to think about is how to deal with it according to mercy and compassion. And thank goodness it's according to mercy and compassion. Because if it was according to justice... No one would be saved. Not one of us. If you want to argue about election from the perspective of righteousness and justice, then all of us are quickly on the road to hell because none of us deserve salvation because all of us are lawbreakers. What we all deserve according to God's righteous justice is to go straight to hell. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are going to die in your sins Because you don't believe. The whole world lies guilty before God. We know that. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 12, quoting the Old Testament, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Listen, when it comes to election unto salvation... When you're standing at that theological wall and you are struggling with the whys of it all, when you're standing right there and you're listening to that reality and you know that reality is true because of who God is and you're struggling with that, what you need to do is bow your head and thank God that He is God who makes His choice on mercy and compassion and not from justice. Because God's choice doesn't depend upon 
Notice verse 16. It doesn't depend upon a man who wills or a man who runs. It doesn't depend upon you. It doesn't depend upon what you desire to do. It doesn't depend upon what you strive to do. If God in the annals of time looked to see who would choose him and then based his choice on the will of man or on the effort of man, then all would be damned and all are damnable. Because that's what justice requires of sinners like you and I. But thanks be to God that it's according to God's sovereign and unobligated and undeserved choice. It's on the basis of God who has mercy. Universalism says that God has to save all. God must save all. In fact, the religions of the world are all saying, listen, we're all headed in the same place. It doesn't matter what you call the God. We're all going to the same place. Well, in one sense, that's true. They just, don't, they just misdefine the place. They're all going to the same place. But it isn't the place that God's chosen are going to. But universalists say that God must save all. They say that God must have mercy upon all or he is unrighteous. It's just not fair. Well, beloved, when you and I think of this great doctrine, we must not think in terms of fairness. We cannot be theological socialists. We have to take God as he is. Thank him for dealing with us according to his mercy because nobody deserves it. So let verse 16 sink into your ears. Let it sink into your ears. Let it get into your very heart because there's probably no statement in all of Scripture that so completely brings us to our complete end. It's not according to your will. It's not according to your effort. See, that's how man thinks. Man thinks that he can, by his own will, decide to be with God. He thinks that he, by his own efforts, can make his way to God. But this verse clearly says that cannot be. That it rejects that as a source for salvation. There is no source for salvation within the the heart, the mind, the will of man at all. The source of salvation is on God who has mercy. Human responsibility is not all denied. Human responsibility isn't thrown out the window like the next question will come up in verse 19. Well, then man can't be responsible because we're just robots. No, that's not the case either. So man's responsibility isn't there. Man ought to will. Man ought to to strive. But we are nothing but sinful. We are dead spiritually. And we cannot and we will not do either of those things unless God comes to us on the basis of His mercy. So when we're wrestling with this doctrine, in the end it really comes down to this. On what are we basing our understanding? And what are we basing our understanding? Is it on the authority of the inspired word of God? And we, we trust what it says and we trust what it means by what it says? 
even though we don't fully comprehend all the details of it and we're standing at that wall of worship and, and there's confusion and struggle in our mind as to how that all plays itself out and how that works itself out. Do we trust God? Do we believe that He is authoritative, that His Word is authoritative, that He means exactly what He said He means and we take it at that or are we basing it on what we think? How we think from our own human perspective and what others think from their own human perspective. It's either one or the other. It can't be both ways. So I say this morning, I thank God that here in this church, we take God at his word unapologetically. Even if that's hard to swallow. Even if that's hard to swallow. God said it. God means it. We must believe it. Well, Paul gives a second reason in verses 17 through 18, but we're out of time. We'll have to save that for next time. I trust this has been helpful in your understanding of why God chooses the way he chooses. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for how you have cared for us. We thank you for the truth that this passage reveals how your mind is so clear on these things. We understand the limitations of our own heart and that we, we can struggle. We know we're sinful. We know we recoil against that because of our own humanity, our own fallenness. It struggles with the reality that choices are made. Father, help us to embrace the reality of our undeserved nature, our complete and utter total depravity mind will spirit we're dead in our trespasses and sins without your mercy and compassion we would have no hope at all thank you for your plan thank you for how you carried out your righteousness how your great majesty is seen in it all help us to embrace it with great faith that you would be glorified in it all, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.